Cassandra slumped down to the floor. The deed was done, her tormentor dead and her own fate sealed. If only they'd listened. Sadly, they could not. Such was Apollo's dark humor. Those who cannot listen never learn to embrace the void. Void quite calming actually. It's like this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 125 of Embrace the Void, where I'm not shouting, you're shouting. I'm your host, Aaron, and this week we have yet another installment in our ongoing crisis of how the fuck do we even talk to each other at this point. I don't know. Do you? Does anybody? I don't know. Why are we shouting? Let's find out. My guest this week is Buster Benson, author of Why Are We Yelling? The Art of Productive Disagreement. Buster, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. How are you doing? Great. I'm glad to have you on to talk about this is a you know a reoccurring theme on this show of how to have productive arguments if such a thing um is possible. But before we get to your book, we were just chatting before the show and uh you dropped a bomb that I think I need to, to discuss is that uh, we may, we are fellow um travelers in the cult formation um mm-hmm. side of things and I'm yeah. I'm very curious to hear a little bit about your experiences as a aspiring cult leader. Yeah, it's it's always it's been a, a amateurish interest of mine, probably for you know I think fifteen years or so. I I really wanted to start a cult um, in my late twenties, and I went to the onboarding for as many different cults as I could, just to get a sense for like you know how they worked. I, I'm really interested in resilient beliefs and belief systems, and how they are useful and mm-hmm. why people join them and all that stuff. So I went to Scientology, Landmark, Vipassana, a couple that I got through the mail. Um, and I'm just an admirer of many cults um, and, you know, skeptic, of course. And I put together a list of sort of like rules to live by for myself, put it up on GitHub, and I've been editing it yearly for the last 15 years or so. Um, uh-huh. And it's just sort of my personal cult. But um, there was a, pint, a t- point in time where I tried to make this a real thing. And when I started a, my one foray outside of tech was in 2006, I started an art gallery in a bar and it was meant to be the, like the church, I guess. And um, we had members and all this stuff and mm-hmm. um, it only lasted a couple of years. So now I'm back to being a personal cult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think digital cult is really the way to go. I think like the in-person <laughs> thing is a little, a little retro at this point. Yeah. There's a lot of edge cases and messy things about that. <laughs> yeah. What were your major takeaways in your survey of the cult world? Any um, important gems that uh, you might want to impart to other individuals who might be trying to build a following? 
Yeah, I, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of us make is that we focus a lot on the tenets or the core beliefs mm-hmm. um, when we really we should be focusing on the processes, the rituals, the mm-hmm. environment, the the spaces that they exist in, um, mm-hmm. the things that they solve. And, you know, that's harder to put down on paper, but it's and, and harder to create. I mean, culture is insanely hard to create, but that is the key to cults, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think community is really the the binding factor there and community involves shared activity in those kind of ways. Yeah. Good stuff. So you mentioned that you were in tech. Um, how did you go from being in tech to writing a book about arguments? Uh, do you want to bridge <laughs> that gap for us a little bit? Yeah. I mean, everything in tech is very, you know, argument free. So it doesn't make so much sense. Right. I'm no, just trying actually. to understand how you would have switched gears <laughs> so thoroughly in that in such a short span of time. Yeah. Well, it's been a long span of time. I, so I graduated <laughs> with a creative writing degree from the University of Washington in 98. Um, and Amazon was just down the street. And so I was f- fully planning to be a novelist and writer um, and, you know, got swept up into the early first tech bubble and, mm-hmm. you know, started on customer support, worked my way up. And, you know, from then I've been trying to escape tech for, you know, 20 years. And the first time was to open this bar. This is the second time um, writing this book. And I think so I've always been trying to um, understand how we can use technology in the world to make us better in some ways. And it turned out, I think right now, my best bet is that like, I have to create things. Creating things is how we reach people. I don't need to create platforms for people to create things anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when it comes to argument as the re- as the topic, um, that has been a long path from like, from my interest in cognitive biases and systems thinking um, mm-hmm. And applying it to real world problems at work, and now applying it to real world problems like at yelling at the TV and at the mm-hmm. you know at Facebook. So um, that's how it all tied together, sort of. Yeah, I mean that makes sense. Do you feel like in tech, the or, or around tech, the disagreements are generally productive, or is this a like hoping that maybe you can bring some of this back down to the mountain to from the mountain to the tech world? Oh, it goes both ways. I think everyone is dysfunctional in different ways. I think mm-hmm. that the business world and is generally a bit um, protected from the downsides of, of disagreement. Like they're not as conflict avoidant as as general populace, mm-hmm. I guess, because there's a shared like sort of trust in the authority of money and capitalism. And like, hey, if it makes money, it's good. Um, whereas in a broader culture, we don't really have that sort of luxury to always lean on. Like, we're not going to agree to disagree because we're both mm-hmm. going to make money somehow by disagreeing. Um, in, in business, you can say, like, okay, well, let's just run the experiment, see what makes more money, and then we'll go with that. Um, so I think there, I don't think there's anything from tech to bring necessarily into into the regular life, but um, the mm-hmm. act of trying to find this common ground with people over and over and over again um has been just a like a, a crucible, I guess, to um, to develop this the skill, and I didn't realize it had been happening until uh, mm-hmm. relatively recently. But I also didn't realize how bad I was still at it um, at the same time. Right. I, I mean, setting aside the the you know the scenarios where people don't act rationally, I think it does make sense that like a, a contract dependent system is going to be more resilient to the kind of 
epistemic crisis and polarization that we're facing right now. I mean, that was the hope within politics, too, right? If you have a thorough, a, a well-formed social contract, then it will mm-hmm. also um, be resilient. And we're currently, it seems like, in the midst of a pretty substantial stress test of that theory. <laughs> um, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious. So, yeah. So, let's talk about how your book presents ways that might help break up some of the kind of communication log jams that are contributing to the social crisis that is causing all of us to yell at our televisions um, mm-hmm. all of the time. Um, to, to get there, let's talk first about sort of first principles. What do you think the purpose or purposes of an argument is? Why do we go? Because I think you make a good point in your book that like, we need to first ask why we're having this behavior, why we're doing this thing. So right. what are the important reasons you think that we should get into arguments? Yeah. So the primary problem that we run into in the world is that we get stuck. You know, we get stuck either because we don't know the answer or because we disagree. Um, And both of those things can cause disagreements. And a disagreement is a way to resolve that stuckedness and to continue moving forward to the next problem. Um, The problem is that we have developed natural cultural norms and skills that are not actually dismantling the problems and, ma- and making us unstuck. They're making us more stuck now. Now that we, now when we argue, sometimes we just get more and more entrenched in our beliefs. We get more and more, uh, we dehumanize people more and more. Um, and the problem is, it seems further and further you know, away from viability. And um, so in a, in a healthy state, a productive disagreement would help you get through that, that stuckness to the other side you know, intact. Um, and an unproductive one would just reinforce that obstacle and make it stronger. Uh huh. And how do you imagine that getting through it sort of working? Because I noticed in your book, you sort of, you seem to, so for example, you say at one point, um, changing minds is really hard. There's really only one thing in the universe, sorry, there's really only one mind in the universe that you can change with some luck, and that's yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious how strongly you buy that. This is a claim that I see sometimes. Um, you know, the idea that it's like genuinely impossible to change other people's minds through argument. And if that's true, what is the way through that we imagine happening in these situations where no one can change each other's minds? Yeah, it's not that I don't think people that minds can change. Minds do change. They can change. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just that the methods that we're using to do so are not going to work. Um, it's sort mm-hmm. of like playing tug of war, you know, and when the, the, the stronger you pull the rope, the stronger the other side pulls the rope. Um, that's not how you get someone to your side. So I say that instead of saying like, you know, instead of thinking of disagreement as a way to change minds, think of it as a way to um, identify what is missing about your belief system or your understanding of that person or the understanding of the problem that is preventing you from coming together and working on it together. And that might mean that you change your mind a little bit, which most of the time I would say like isn't along the spectrum of like their side versus your side, but it's more like what is the third perspective that can allow these two sides to coexist and collaborate at the same time? And Mm -hmm. you don't have to agree, but you have to work together. And that's sort of the, you know, it's not about changing their mind. It's about getting them on your side uh, Mm -hmm. emotionally and in a collaborative state so that you can work on the problem together. So yeah, so like building a larger framework in which both your views can be reconciled in some kind of way. Yeah. Um, would you agree yeah. though that there are there are certainly situations and, and important ones where there may not be a, a sort of unifying framework that can bring two opposing positions together? I think 
in practice, yes. Like in practice, we're time constrained and resource constrained and energy constrained. And mm -hmm. there might be a point where we run out of one of those things and we can't continue forward. And both sides, if that happens to that, then you can't do it. But I think theory, there should always be a way. There should always be a way to find some common interest or some reason. So, so the way I define disagreement in the book is, is, is two perspectives that disagree, but in, in addition to disagreeing, they have to have that disagreement has to be unacceptable. And mm -hmm. for me, moving towards collaborative or productive disagreement means getting to the point where the two perspectives are no longer unacceptable. They are acceptable because that's just how it is. And with that information, you then move forward and, and work on the actual problem. Um, so I don't think there's a point in theory, I guess, you know, it's very abstract at this point, but like where no matter what, it's impossible for us to ever have a productive disagreement. Um, so I, I guess I'm going to press on this just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, so like, I, I think there are, there, there are two ways that I could go at this sort of theoretically, it seems like to me, there are sometimes sort of in, in the realm of ethics, irreducible competing sort of values and that like there may not be a way that that you could get everyone to agree on how we should um, weight those different values or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and in a more applied kind of context, right, like I'm not sure how there could be any reconciliation between my view and just to use like a really you know easy ethical example right like a thoroughgoing nazi kind of view right like mm -hmm. if they genuinely believe the things that they say they believe and i then there's just no there's no way that we're ever going to find anything like a coexisting functional common ground it seems like mm. would you would you agree with that or do you feel like um you know on, on a long enough timeline i could find a way to reconcile with them that doesn't involve one of us abandoning our core tenants in some way yeah so i think the way you framed it um the mm -hmm. the ex ex expectation is that you would somehow convince them to uh, abandon their naziist you know philosophies right. um and that might be true. I think that, you know, because we can't change their minds, we can't, you know, having that as a goal may be impossible. But I think there is a way to, you know, it's it's not it's not the beliefs that are the, the problem here. It's the it's the um, what you do with the beliefs and what the beliefs are trying to do. And, you know, what the you know, what are, what is the purpose of the hate crimes? What is the purpose of, you know, um, cleansing populations of people that are different from you? Um yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that that practical uh, application of the theory can be moved um, where ultimately they want to, you know, this is incredibly charitable. I don't, I think we'd have to actually talk to someone with this belief to understand what their real goals were, but it's feasible or viable to me to think that they want to, um, you know, live a life that is not you know, constantly in, you know, racial turmoil or demographic turmoil, and they want to be protected and they want their culture to be protected. Um, and, you know, there's, if they're, if they're allowed to do that in some way that doesn't hurt other people, then I think, you know, that would be possible. The, the mm -hmm. older alternative is if it's, if it is impossible, then the only solution is, you know, is, is to kill them. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's, if it's completely irreconcilable, then there's no point in having a productive disagreement. It's merely about, you know, Force. turning into the same ideology that they have, which also seems completely, um, well, no. Th th so th I, I was I was agreeing with you up when you were saying force. I, I wouldn't agree that you'd become the same as them. I think that there's a difference. If you between... think they must be wiped out in order to because they are unsavable. 
Oh, I think there's a difference exactly. between like if people are aggressively violent towards the world around them, like if there's someone who's just persistently violent towards people around them, mm -hmm. uh, killing that person as a way to protect all of the other people from random acts of violence, I think, is a yeah. different behavior than being the person who runs around randomly causing acts of violence. So, yes. but like, I mean, I, I appreciate your and like, I'm I'm pressing you on this, and I appreciate your charitable reading, and I do. I am sympathetic to the idea that at the very ground level, there is a shared fun, you know, there are shared fundamental values between all of these different views and that and all of our different ethical views and that sometimes they're just out of whack and particularly extreme kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, and I, I do think that and like there is the idealist side of me that that wants to argue these things out to the point where you like that i guess what yeah, in your yeah. book you call the, the rational uh, voice in my head yeah. right that like mm -hmm. says there has to be a way to resolve this disagreement yeah um, and i don't think that that's true yeah for sure and you know the the real question i think we have in these kinds of conversations is is the, is having the belief enough to to right, completely write them off as humans um or is it the actions that they take mm -hmm. you know that we need to use, like in a in a more you know uh, pragmatic sense, like what can we do to protect people to maximize you know you know or minimize violence and, and hate crimes? Um, that means that we can't necessarily just use their ideology as as the signal for that. It's really their mm -hmm. actions that we have to look to. Yeah, and that raises the the one other question that I wanted to ask in this section about the you know the purpose of argument is: Do you believe that we should be trying to change people's behavior and not just their beliefs? I think we should be trying to solve problems and sort of improve our own um, perspective mm -hmm. of the world. Um, and so sometimes that means, you know, if you're if you're like, okay, there's a problem in this in this community, there's two paths forward. Either I'm wrong about the problem, and the solution to it is for me to see it differently, or the solution is to try a few things and see what works, and continue to try to improve that system so that you know whatever the outcome is that we're trying to mutually get towards is more likely to happen. Um, so I don't, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't think that it's always going to be about um, just changing people's behaviors. Sometimes it's about changing your beliefs about what should be done. Mm -hmm. And we don't I know at, that. The, at, the, at that moment which one it's going to be. We have to sort of go into it thinking it might be this or it might be that. Um, and I think that's the sort of voice of possibility that I speak to, which is like, we don't know the answer, but we have to, so we have to do things to help us reveal more information um, mm -hmm. and to understand them better, understand the problem better. And mm -hmm. so that we can move forward. Yeah, no, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. And that there are situations where acceptance of a person's behavior may be the right move instead of trying to change it or something like that, or um, channeling their behavior in different ways rather than trying to get them to just stop having the behavior altogether. I'm, I'm all sort of sympathetic yeah. for those yeah, yeah. nuances. I just wanted to um, sort of get in here a marker that like, to me, to me, argument for the sake of argument is a fun and entertaining activity, <laughs> but like a luxury in a time where what we need is argument that's leading to substantial changes in behavior that's causing a lot of harm. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's what I mean by like the, mm -hmm. um, you know, we have to do something. We have to find what's, what's the useful way to move forward. Yeah, so let's talk about your useful ways to move forward, because I think you do uh, a good job setting up a couple of different systems. Um, one involves, we'll talk first about this one that involves a breaking down of the different categories of disagreements. So I, I read these as like sort of you chunking 
the different arguments that we have into what what they're really being arguments about. And I think you, you refer yeah. to them as the head, the heart, um, and the hand. Do you want to maybe explain those a little bit and why you find it valuable to chunk the world in this way? Yeah, I, I think so. Th- one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, is that we often mistake an argument for that, we, and we think it's about information, and it's really about mm-hmm. values. And yeah. so the 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 head is information. So it's an argument. Of the head is like I can go in, out and look it up in a dictionary, or like you know find the academic you know paper on this and find the answer, and that would resolve it. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of these realms is about how do you resolve it? How do you, what? How would you validate the truth in this context? Um, so the head is about validating the truth in forms of information that can be looked up. Um, the realm of the heart is about value. So it's subjective. It's about the why. And this is what you mentioned earlier. Like sometimes you, there's no way for me to say like, you should like ice cream. I love ice cream. You should love ice cream too. If you, you know, I'm not going to be able to convince you of that. Um, and there is no objective truth to that question. There's no way mm-hmm. for us to resolve this subjectively. Um, it's merely merely a preference. And sometimes this can go as far to like, I think it's important to protect human life, or I think it's important to protect, you know, these humans over these humans, or this kind of problem over that kind of problem, or we need to prioritize problems in this way, or this is how much we should pay for, you know, the solution. There's almost all of our problems are in the realm of the heart. Um, and yet we treat them as if they're in the realm of the head, because we're throwing around evidence. The third one is the realm of the hands, which I would say is taking what you know from information and what you believe from your heart and finding a way to um, move it forward so that do something with that information that you will both learn from. So if it's a proposal to let's try to address, you know, I hate crimes with this intervention, um, you may not agree that that's a good intervention because that's in the heart, but you might, you mm-hmm. could both predict what will happen if you do that intervention. One person might say like this intervention is going to fail. It's going to make things worse. It's going to cost too much. And you might, you might say like, I think this intervention will, will be cost effective and effective in general, easy to roll out. And then you do it. And then you see what happens. And it might be the case that you're both wrong. It might be the case that you're both right in different ways. Um, but either way um, you learn something from it. And, you're no longer stuck. You're actually doing something that is um, mm-hmm. intended to um, address the problem at hand. Okay, great. So let's let's poke this a little bit from a philosophy side of things. If that's all right. Um, so yeah, the, the he- <laughs> let's start, let's start, let's set aside the hand thing for a second and talk about the head uh, versus the heart. Um, mm-hmm. This to this to me sounds like coming from my my ethicist side of things, like the fact value divide in a sense, mm-hmm. or the the mm-hmm. is ought divide, or however you want to sort of describe yep. that that distinction. Um, and it it sounds like from the way you were just describing it that you do sort of associate that with an objective subjective kind of divide that you think um, facts are things that can be sort of assessed in a a, a more functional, objective manner, whereas feelings, including moral preferences, are in the realm of, like you were saying, preferences and not facts. Is that is that a fair sort of assessment? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to break it down. Like I think mm-hmm. the is ought is a good way to say it. I think you know I often think of it just like the the what and the why. Um, so, mm-hmm. or what is what is what is real and what is or and what is meaningful or important. Um, both those sort of different kinds of ways of dividing it up are important. And I do think that, you know, a lot of ethics and morality fit into the heart area. Mm-hmm. Um, at some point, you have to say, we believe that this is the right thing to do because it will affect this kind of change or affect this kind of, you know, solve this kind of problem. And then it can move into the hands a little bit. But um, mm-hmm. at the very 
you know, ground level, it's, it's in the heart. Do you think that the, the head and the heart themselves kind of blend together sometimes though, in the way that like human beings actually engage with this material so that like, you know, you might be thinking like, oh, I'm having a fact-based argument and you are having a fact-based argument, but the other person's criteria, their epistemology is feeling-based. And so like, uh-huh. they're going to uh-huh. say, I really feel like the climate change data is right. biased. And so I'm not going to rely on it. Um, yeah. How would you, I guess, maybe how would you try to uh, disentangle when these things sort of get wrapped yeah. up like that? I think most of the time we think we're talking about evidence and information and the is, mm-hmm. um, but it's wrapped up in layers and layers of why and the meaning and the values, and we don't untangle them. But they are, you know, they, they come out as um, entangled, and it's our job to sort of, you know, that's sort of why I, I like this distinction, because it's really important for me in a conversation to um, actually perform that disentanglement and say, like, okay, well, I can see that you believe that this is important to do. Um, tell me why you think it's important. What is, what is, you know, where did that, like, that, that value system come from? Like, why, why do you believe this? What do you think would happen, you know, if we prioritize this and that kind of thing? Because mm-hmm. if we only resort back to like, okay, well, tell me more information about what's happening in the world, you're just going to go in circles because that's not where the disagreement is happening. That's just fodder for supporting your values. It's not mm-hmm. going to change any beliefs. So if you feel that, and I I actually agree with you that like a lot of arguments tend to be of the heart in the way that you are describing more than just like mere disagreements of facts. And that's why they disagreements are often resistant to the presentation of new facts. Mm-hmm. But then you also tend to seem to have the imp- have the feeling that like uh, the heart based stuff is subjective in a sense. You compared it to ice cream, right? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I as a moral realist will point out is that if you think that morality is like ice cream flavors, what's the point in arguing about morality then? Because, like, there is no fact of the matter that chocolate is better than vanilla. And then then by comparison, right, there's no fact of the matter than slavery is worse than not slavery or something Uh like that. Um, So I guess I'm curious what you think about uh, argument on that side of things, if it's productive, what, what you should be pointing to when you're trying to have those arguments. Yeah. And there's a danger here when I articulate mm-hmm. this, that I might be bucketed into like moral relativism and I'm, mm-hmm. I don't really identify in that way. Um, that said, I think you can always reduce it down to the, the, uh, the change, the thing that you want different in the future. Um, so whether it be, um, and I think in some ways this can be interpreted as pragmatism um, in like the, the, the traditional sense, um, mm-hmm. not the way that we think of it, uh, in popular culture, but like just pure, like what are the effects that we prefer? And I think it's okay to prefer things just because we prefer them and there's no absolute truth there doesn't mean that they're not important. Um, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that's what, that's what it means. Like if we value human life and we value um, sort of supporting each other and we value being kind and we value all these things, um, that's great. You know, we should find strategies to increase that in the world. Uh, um, and so I, think that just because there isn't an objective um, moral Mm -hmm. like principle backing it we can still collectively work towards the things we prefer i'm certainly hopeful that like even people who aren't going to jump on my moral realism boat are still on board for like (laughs) trying to make things better so but yeah i just wanted to to push you a little bit i would love to hear more about this moral realism i haven't really talked to anyone with this belief so oh yeah i'm happy to talk off the podcast but like (laughs) i I, i'm fascinated by it 
I'll point you back towards the episodes that I've done. But I just actually was yeah. just on the Dissenter podcast talking about this that just released. So okay. you, can get a, you can get a recent version of that. And everyone who's listening to this show should go check out that episode while I'm, in, while I'm mentioning it. Um, yeah. But yeah, and you mentioned pragmatism, which I think I wanted to bring in here as well, because your third option here, the hand, the practical side of things, to me reads a lot like like pragmatism and it it's mm-hmm. an integration of the head and the heart into a question of like what is useful to believe what is useful to engage in and that sort of thing uh, would you agree mm-hmm. that like the hand is kind of made up of a combination of the head and the heart in your system yes yeah it's sort mm-hmm. of yeah i think the heart makes use of the head and the hands make use of the heart and the hands i mm-hmm. think in that sense of like you need to act with your values and with your information and basically engage in this um, sort of this active participation in the world to see whether or not your predictions can come true. You know, so can mm-hmm. you intervene in the way that you think you can? Does the intervention have the change that you think it will? And by creating that feedback loop, get smarter about things. And it doesn't actually get you to an ultimate truth, but it gets you to an ultimate fittedness, I suppose, um, for that problem set while it exists. Yeah, and I think that even if you yeah, if you don't want to dive into the meta ethics side of this stuff, you could still get on board and find some common agreement in that pragmatic side of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So so let's move to your second methodology where there's a, um, a lot of good stuff that I want to um, unpack here some. And this is I would sort of describe this as like eight steps for in the moment how to approach engagement, disagreement, argument um, with other people. Um, and I want to I want to work through and focus on a couple of the steps um, in particular. I'm curious how you initially what your method was for developing <laughs> these specific eight steps. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is it was a chaotic endeavor, um, like mm. like it, you know you may expect. And I rewrote the book five times to get here, so it was oh wow, it was a long journey. I didn't know what the eight things were when I started, (laughs) obviously. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it ended up being a synthesis of a lot of different books and sort of Mm -hmm. kinds of thinking that I've admired over the years. And I found these different connections and sort of grouped them together and tried to summarize them in ways. So like we're talking very abstractly now, but now, but the book is really practical um, and approachable and has lots of illustrations just to like, you know, bring it down to earth a little bit and make it real. It does have some um, great cartoons. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. It helps me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the eight things came out of um, just, in the, you know, the creative process of trying to understand what are the different ways we get blocked in every day. And I tried to order them in terms of like sort of easy to hard um, mm-hmm. and, and like some of them build on top of each other. So by the time you get to like building arguments together, you, ha- you know, being able to ask questions that spark surprising answers and being able to speak for yourself are really important. Um, mm-hmm. And so, th- but I don't know if I've arrived at any ultimate, you know, these aren't the only eight I'm sure, <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're just like the eight that I, I found um, that I, yes, I want you to know, share. If you're, if you're doing commandments, I recommend, you know, <laughs> eight to 10 noble truth yeah. slash, <laughs> Uh, it's probably a good range. So yeah, I yeah. think you're in the ballpark, cult, cult yeah. wise. Um, so let's let's work. I'm going to read through the the list of eight, and I don't I don't think we'll have time to get through all of them. So I've got no, a couple yeah. of specific questions on a few, but I just want to give folks a sort of an idea of what your map looks like. Um, so you start with uh, watch how anxiety sparks, and then talk to your internal voices, <laughs> develop honest bias, speak for yourself. Ask questions that invite surprising answers. Build arguments together. 
cultivate neutral space and accept reality than participate in it. I love the way a lot of these are described, actually. So let's start at the beginning. What about, uh, watch how anxiety sparks. Um, anxiety yeah. is a perennial topic here in the void. So oh, yeah. yeah, so give, give us a sense of how you came around to this idea of, of like focusing on anxiety as being the first most important step of any argument, because I totally agree with you on this. Yeah, I wanted to reframe um, anxiety mm-hmm and cognitive dissonance in particular, just because I've been thinking about it so much. Cognitive dissonance is the thing that basically triggers our, our, our biases and our motivated thinking to apply some kind of heuristic uh, because we're sort of in this problem situation and we need, to, we need an answer. Um, so anxiety sparks when a core belief or value or preference or an idea about the world is threatened. And we oftentimes see through this lens. We see the threat and we feel threatened, but we don't fully understand why we feel threatened and we don't understand if that, that threat is real. Um, mm-hmm. And so I start here, you know, and sort of tying together things from mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy and things like that where, um, you know, understanding the spark of anxiety, knowing that's the doorway, that's the doorway to an argument, and that's the best place to intervene. Um, of course, it's the hardest place to intervene because that's also when your brain moves into sort of autopilot. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's there because it's the, it's, it's the doorway. And it's once you get past this, this first step, the rest of them become possible. If we can't get past this first step of noticing like, okay, wait, I feel threatened by something. You know, we have this, you know, nomenclature now, like I feel triggered. I feel, you know, I feel my, you know, anxious, angry. I feel outrage, you know, whatever it is. Um, Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do next? Are you going to attack? Are you going to self-reflect? Are you going to ask a question? That's, that's your choose your own adventure of the disagreement right there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you um, refer to it in various other points as um, acknowledging the shadow, which is something we yeah. talked about before, being aware of one's own sort of pathos and things like that. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm definitely sympathetic to this as a practice that individuals have to cultivate, a kind of stoic-like practice that they have to co- cultivate in your own mind. And it, it is a lifelong kind of process. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious what your thoughts are about a lot of these, and I, I understand that your answer to a lot of my questions may be, you know, focus on yourself and that's all you can do. But like, you know, in a world where I think some of us might feel like the the conflicts aren't, I'm having trouble acknowledging my own anxiety, but it genuinely feels like other individuals are, are having a really hard time acknowledging their anxieties. Right after the 2016 election, there was so much argument over what kind of anxiety, if any, racial or economic was driving Trump's election, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you? Th- how do you think that we should approach other people's anxieties? Do you think that we should, you know, if I experience what seems to me to be another person being anxious, that I should assume that mm-hmm. they are, in fact, in an anxious kind of state? Is it presumptuous mm-hmm. to assume that? Um, you know, what are, your, what are your thoughts about that kind of, those kind yeah, of problems? Yeah, that's great. That's a great. I mean, so I think this is two, the two sides of the coin. One of them is, you know, as we practice sort of understanding our own um, sort of con- conversational habits, brain habits, you know, um, mm-hmm. responses to stress, um, we can then start to notice it in other people. And when, and this is really the act of arguing, because like, again, like coming back to like, what is it unacceptable? Like the anxiety is about, is, is saying something's unacceptable here, I must fix it. Um, and if you help the other person 
um, unravel their anxiety and like understand like where is it coming from like what caused like what were the formative events in their lives that created these values what were the you know who are the people that they admire that sort of exhibit these traits these plot these principles um, and you understand and you help them sort of through conversation um, not attack their their wrongness but um, mm-hmm. help them understand themselves better um, that is productive disagreement in itself so I think um, there, but first, have to you have to be sort of pretty good at this yourself before you can really help anyone else do it. And would you say, right, if you're trying to interact with somebody and you feel like they're the disagreement is hung up on an anxiety that that they're just unwilling to acknowledge, um, that that's that's pretty much the end of the line for that kind of disagreement, or do you think that there can still be workarounds when someone is unable to acknowledge their anxiety? I think there's always. I mean, I think. Once, I mean, I personally, so sometimes I will find myself, you know, entering an argument. I forget, you know, that I'm, I'm supposed to be good at this. Um, and I'll be, oh crap, I missed it. I, 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 I lost, you know, track of it and I need mm-hmm. to go back and, and figure it out. I think the humility that comes from realizing how much of our anxiety is subconscious and how, how deeply interwoven cognitive dissonance is to our way of thinking, it's, it's a really hard step to like, sort of see it rather than see through it um and mm-hmm. so see, being able to have that um see the other person struggle um similarly and be like okay well they're gonna have a hard time acknowledging anxiety because um we all do um and so maybe i'm not gonna help i'm not gonna make any progress today um but maybe there's a long you know if that person is important to you um a long-term sort of path that you can sort of ask the right questions sort of create the enough safety for them like sort of unravel their personal story and their personal history to the point mm-hmm. where they can see it. Like, I think that's like the ultimate like amount, like sort of level of caring you can do for a person. Um, and I don't know if there's a cutoff point where someone is hopeless and they can't ever figure it out. No, I didn't mean to suggest um, that it, someone might necessarily be hopeless. I think again, on a long enough timeline, right? Maybe you can yeah. liberate everyone's consciousness, but I think, you know, in reality <laughs> yeah. we have situations where we just have to acknowledge that like a relationship is, um, is is not going to progress because of um, yeah. anxieties that you're not in a position to help that person with. Yeah. At some point, um, there's a, a math question of like, do I have the resources to help this person? And mm-hmm. do I want to? Um, yeah. And sometimes the answer to me, no. Because like, you know, definitely the, the goal here isn't to engage in every single possible disagreement you run into in the world, um, mm-hmm. but to, to find the ones that, you know, have the biggest opportunities on the other side. Um, and the most value. So sometimes the math won't work out. And I think it's um, a good thing to note that like we often, you know, I think we see these days people like talking about, well, what does it take to get to a point where you can change someone's mind? And it often is like, you have to really build a relationship with that person where they have some skin in the game with you and you with them. Mm -hmm. And I think another part of that process is that there being enough trust to be able to be honest about one's anxieties with the other person rather than sort of, you know, drawing the battle line from the start. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you go through that whole process, that whole journey and their mind does change and you ask yourself, did I change their minds? You're Mm going to say no, probably you're going to say, you know, this, that wasn't the point. The point of it was something else. And this emerged from that Mm -hmm. relationship. Um, And I changed too, and we changed together. Um, And that's, that's the kind of change I think that we can, we can create and sort of participate in, but we don't, we're not the prime mover here. Um, Mm -hmm. We're just the participant in it. 
Yeah, fair enough. So let's jump to number three, uh, develop honest biases. I think biases are so hot right now. Um, yes. <laughs> what What is an honest bias and, and why should we develop an honest bias rather than trying to get rid of our biases entirely? Yeah, this is the this is this is a question that I had when I started this process, this whole project, I guess, because um, I wrote the cognitive bias cheat sheet in 2016 in an attempt to synthesize like the 200 plus biases and make it something I can understand and internalize. Um, and through that process, I realized that um, biases aren't necessarily, you know, they're not an, they're not a bug in our brain. They're they have many purposes, and some of them are useful and some of them are harmful. Um, and all of them are meant to save us energy and time and sort of like deal with this you know, existential problem, like not having enough time or energy or in, like mm-hmm. not being able to understand everything. Um, so the, unfortunately, as biases have sort of entered the mainstream sort of mindset narrative, they've been presented as problems that you have to fix. And so all of our all of our focus and effort has been around debiasing um, these these tendencies and I think that's incredibly um, unproductive and even counterproductive because they they are so deeply woven in our brains that we just can't do that. Um, if we got rid of our you know a, our preference for familiar things over unfamiliar things, like how would we ever function? Mm-hmm. Um, that so developing honest bias to me means something like like I think you said this in in your episode about discordianism, which is like <laughs> it's a corrective religion. I think honest bias mm-hmm. is the corrective uh, mindset where you're not trying to fix the root cause of the bias because our brains are just naturally constrained, but correcting the problems that they cause in the world is something we can do. So rather than focusing on who's biased, why they're biased, you know, how biased they are, how terrible and evil they are, focus on like, what is that evil causing? Like, and what is the evil, like, what is the bias in me causing? And how can I fix those problems? How can I repair the damage caused by bias? Um, mm-hmm. And that's out in the world. It's not in people's heads. And I think it's a much more um, actionable strategy and uh, much less frustrating Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you uh, in this chapter cite a a particular paper, which is a bit of a uh, flashpoint for a lot of folks. You cite um, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility paper yes. as yep. giving what you consider, it seems, a good account of the paradox at the heart of biases. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. um, have you gotten any pushback for citing that? Do you think that it is a good paper? And, and what do you <laughs> think it gets right in this context as a... Um, as an analysis of the nature of bias, it's fascinating because I, I I'm definitely you know on the more progressive liberal side of things ideologically just naturally that's where I ended up, um, and so I read the book with sort of um, with interest and sort of trying to understand it, and I saw how easily it would be misinterpreted. Um, by you know, by an uncharitable reading, and I think this is what causes. Like I think she stepped into uh, she. Uh, a really complicated topic and try to uh, disentangle the difference between you as a racist and a racist sort of system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got mis- interpreted as a racist, like everyone's racist, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. so that's the exact problem at the heart of bias, right? That's like, we, we are trying to remove, we're trying to make people unracist um, when in fact we should be focusing on the system and what the system of, you know, this sort of racist system has um 
created and the, the problems it has caused um, that are really complicated and that go way back. And they, they can't, there's no one to, like, you can't just like pin it down to particular people causing these things. It's just the, the system of incentives and opportunities that exist. And she does a great job. If you're listening, if you're looking for the charitable reading of it, of speaking to that. And I, I, mm-hmm. I found it to be the most articulate um, version of that thought that I found so far. Um, of course it's, it's nuanced. And so it's easy to, to, uh, to read the other way too. Yeah, well, it seems very similar to the sort of argument that that man puts forward in um, Down Girl, which is that like um, uh, patriarchy is a not a system of specifically individuals explicitly having sexist views, but of a a system that reinforces um, sexist structures, even if particular individuals aren't acting it out um, in that kind of way. Now. These have both gotten a lot of pushback, and I'm curious what you think about the pushback that, like, systems theory analysis in this way makes up sort of a system that doesn't actually exist and can't be sort of well proven in or that, you know, like the social sciences that claim to prove it are um, corrupted by ideology in various kinds of ways. And so they're not actually managing to prove it. And that like, you know, if there aren't people explicitly being racists or sexists in some kind of way, then you're just inventing a sort of socialized boogeyman instead (laughs) to continue to sort of complain about inequality or, or justify arguments about systemic inequality. Yeah. What do you think about those kind of arguments? Yeah, I think they're a great example of us still being stuck in the realm of the head, which is like, is it real? Can we prove it? Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. versus how can we sort of act with, you know, regardless of how real it is or not real it is, like, can we still change and improve the world, you know, for people that feel, you know, disenfranchised um, and not not get stuck at the gate, which I, you know, it's like, is this a real problem or not? Because that's not, that's, you know, unless you believe in objective truth at this level, like, it's not going to ever be resolved. And it's an easy way to just create a permanent stuckedness for the conversation. Um, of course, it's super cultural. And like, this is just the language that we use to talk about it. So I don't mm-hmm. think it's intentional either. It's just that I see that this, this like circling around is not going to be resolved. Um, and so we should, I mean, I personally want us to move from that conversation to, you know, what are the interventions that we can do to, um, and then what are the effects that we think those interventions will have? And can mm-hmm. we agree that the effects that they create are okay um, and worth it? Um, and, you know, do you think they will work? Let's make predictions about them and see if they actually unfold the way we think they are. Let's learn from them as they go um, and see, you know, if we can get smarter about this. Because none of us are spending time getting smarter about this. We're talking about very abstract things and trying to um, sort of mm-hmm. get more and more entrenched in their positions. And, you know, that's sort of the, that's that's a microcosm, actually, you know, but at the, at the, macro, <laughs> the macro level of, of the problem I see with disagreement right now. Yeah, and that that brings me to the next one that I wanted to talk about in your in your journey list, which is um, number five: ask questions that invite surprising answers, uh, which yeah. I thought was a very good way to to put it. Now, part of me, of course, uh, the sort of Socratic dialogue part of me thinks, well, a lot of times you want to ask questions where you sort of know the answer, so that you can sort of lead the person down a path that will help them to understand the thing um, by the end. I'm guessing that you're probably okay with sometimes asking those kind of questions, but also asking surprising questions. Is that is that right? Or do you feel like uh, there's a t- that these are distinct methods and works. that one is actually better than the other? Or 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I think that we think that the Socratic method works better than it does, at least in the, <laughs> like in the, in, in the, um, in the sort of paternalistic, like, you know, I'm going to mm-hmm. trick you into uh, a, a paradox. Um, kind yeah. of, Cause like, we're not good at like so- Socrates was very smart and, you know, had, you know, lots of people to help him like sort of, you know, rephrase his questions to be productive. He still comes off as a bit of an asshole. A total dick. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and that's not what we need right now. We need, we need genuine curiosity. We need genuine sort of like, um, sort of empathy and, you know, sort of looking for the things that we don't know instead of just trying to gotcha people into the things that we do know. Um, mm-hmm. Cause I don't, I don't think that, you know, if we are, truly on the same side we're trying to understand virtue or courage or you know maybe this will work but we're the kinds of problems we have now are are much weirder and we have a lot less in common with the people we're having them with and i I don't think it's going to work as well Um, i haven't seen it work as well Um, that said i think that's a lot of stuff in like dialectic in general that you know sort of leans more towards the open-ended questions side of Mm -hmm. things that is worth exploring but, so, you know, if it works, I think it's, I'm not saying that all questions have to be like this. I'm just saying that right. there should be a centerpiece that's, you know, of unknown answers. No, I, I do. I, I enjoy, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm like a conservative strategy kind of person. So, like, I like to play a prevent defense kind of argument a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do enjoy the wild gamble of asking a question I don't know the answer to. Um, or feel like I have no idea what the answer is going to be and seeing where that goes. I'm curious, what do you think of as a a good, uh, how, how would we get to a good surprising kind of question? What makes for a good in, um, yeah. question that gives you surprising answers? I always, the seed of, a, of the question that I oftentimes wrap other questions around is like, what am I missing? So it would be like, you know, what what has happened in your life that sort of was formative for you to create this you know this strong you know passion for this position um or mm-hmm. who do you admire that has this this quality or um what do people like me misinterpret about people like you you know just start looking helping because they're sort of they could provide some form of stereo vision um into ourselves um where they can show us our blind spots and if we use them as a as a source of information about our own shadow, about our own blind spots, like we're going to get a whole lot of value from the conversation and it will build trust and it will be enjoyable and all the other things that can come out of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds of questions I look for where like, you know, I can actually, what can I learn from this person is, um, you know, and if I don't think I can learn anything about them, and I have zero curiosity about them, I shouldn't be talking to them. Um, I should, mm-hmm. and unless you're curious about why you think that they're totally worthless, you know, in terms of information about you. Um, so I, I think there's, that's the right strategy that I've taken, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always fun because it leads to a really interesting story and that's self-reinforcing. Yeah, so let me let me try to ask a question that might invite a surprising answer right. because you had a, a example you used in this section that triggered some of my anxieties as a skeptic. Uh, what are your views about ghosts? <laughs> yeah, I love this one. I'm a skeptic of ghosts too, um, and okay. <laughs> but I I also learned that the question uh, about ghosts isn't one about. You know, again, it's not about, is it real? The more I asked questions, I was like, I was asking, so I had a, sal- a salon at my house where we just, you know, a mishmash of people with different beliefs on ghosts. We, and we decided to have dinner together as potluck and share our stories and sort of be open to like sort of inquisitive questions and sort of skepticism and, you know, doubt um, just to like make it safe. And 
I realized as I asked people who had really, really, you know, there's they'll tell stories like I was possessed and I wrote these songs that was really my best friend who had just passed away that wrote them. Um, or, you know, my friend, you know, told us to stop on the side of the road and then, you know, he dug up a, a, a little box that had money in it or something. I don't know, like really strange stories that if I was seeing it through the realm of the head of like the information of like, how can I validate this with proof? Um, that's what I usually go down. It's like, how do I prove, like, how do I layer on my skepticism and sort of find the flaw in this argument or the story um, versus when I was asking the questions like how did how is this useful to you how did the story you know um, help you you know improve your life how is it you know all these other things I learned that they spend very little time about the proof aspect and spend all the time um, using it as a language to talk about the unknown to talk about mystery to talk about um, you know things that you know can't be explained and in this sense, it was this really rich language to talk about those things. And I began to appreciate ghosts in terms of like basically a literal like metaphor for the unknown um, that we refuse to say, you know, we refuse to look at it with this epistemic lens. And we just say like, this is the door, you know, my foot in the door is saying like, there's something out there that I don't understand. And mm. I like that. I prefer that. And I want that in my life. And this language helps me sort of express that. Do you worry at all about it becoming patronizing in terms of like, you know, I know or I you know I strongly believe that there's no sufficient evidence for belief in ghosts. And so when I talk to people about this, I'm asking them, you know, what experiences, what felt needs do you have that cause you to have this belief sounds to me, you know, not too far away from like, you know, what what what's wrong with you that you're having to pretend to believe in ghosts in order to feel better about, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I worry about how that might slide into like, oh, you know, you're clinging to your ghosts and your guns and whatnot. It it really depends on if you are asking it genuinely. I mm -hmm. it's, I find that it's interesting because I do get this question a lot where I think maybe I might be explaining it wrong a little bit because um, it does sort of trigger this question of like patronizing um, mm -hmm. tone when... I've gotten way more pushback for, you know, asking questions about, you know, how do you prove that this is real? Like that's patronizing because that's not what, that's not the conversation that they want to have. It's, it's, you know, you're sort of, sort of dragging them into your, your sort of belief system and using those tools to dismantle their story. When really what I am trying to advocate for is like enter their language, enter their story and ask questions in that language and see where it goes. And it's, it's a lot less, um, if, if you're still holding on to this, this, this like desire to change, the, like still find the flaw, then yeah, it'll t come mm -hmm. off as uh, sort of facetious and sort of disingenuous. Mm -hmm. But if you really do just have curiosity about their perspective, then it's like, you know, it's a very you know generous thing to, to provide the conversation. Um, and I've never um, personally run into, I've been called, you know, patronizing in other contexts, but not in this particular context um, mm -hmm. uh, where you know, it just ends up because like then they can open up and say, you know, I don't actually know if they're real or not, you know, and maybe I'll never know. And and, and so that rather than because they, they'll only say that when, you know, and I'm saying they actually, I really should be talking about specific people because um, that does make it but sound more. Yeah. But um, but like they'll say like, yeah, they won't say that in a in a battle context, but they will say it in a in a situation where like they're truly like sort of speaking the language of of that belief system. Um, mm -hmm. And 
it's important to point that out just because it's, that's not the center of it. That's just the very periphery of, of the conversation. Yeah. I certainly enjoy, I mean, I'm always up for hyping Marsha's Be Reasonable as an, a podcast example of exactly what you're describing, making that the space for them to talk earnestly about what they um, believe. So yeah. Uh, with our time that we have left, I want to broaden this back out to our current cultural situation a little bit here, because you you clearly in the book are locating this in the time and place of, you know, what I see is this sort of continuing epistemic crisis, cultural mm-hmm. death spiral that it seems like our polarized environment is in. And towards the end of the book, you, you mentioned one other thing that I think is valuable, which is um, the fruits of disagreement. We talked about this a bit at the beginning, but coming back to it, you talk about you know, things that people get out of disagreement would be things like security, um, personal growth, connection, and enjoyment. Now, from my perspective, and this is, I'll express my earnest liberal biases, um, (laughs) it feels to me that um, the people who I strongly disagree with, they are really looking for a place of security. They are feeling Mm -hmm. insecure, and they, the expressions of their viewpoints are sort of ritual reinforcements of their their need for felt security um do you agree with that sort of cultural assessment and i'm also curious do you think we have an obligation each of us as individuals to try to seek out all of the fruits of disagreement rather than focusing entirely on something like security for example yeah i do think security is the one that we all sort of lean to the most it's it's sort of what um that's why we go after the conceding defeat um sort of goal most of the time um because we feel we feel tense about this you know unacceptable disagreement and we want that to result we want to go away and the best we can do there is to get a concession um and that is secure because it sort of established some kind of like power dynamic between us where like you've agreed to you know uh, concede to my points um of course their mind hasn't been changed they probably you know hate you a little more but there's some kind of power structure there that that does create security that so i don't think but i don't think there's anything wrong with security i just don't think that that's the right way to go about it um Mm -hmm. because it's 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 a false sense in a lot of ways like we think that things are you know we think racism is over and you know 100, 200 years later, it was like, oh, wait, it's still here. Um, and it just creates a giant blind spot for that problem to to fester. Um, so I really emphasize the growth connection and enjoyment ones because I think the three of those do create security through um, sort of like a cohesive community and trust and um, sort of cultures that encourage problem sort of um, addressing and, and working on. Um, and that creates security, but it's not—it's not, it's not going to be—it's not a top-down kind of thing. It's more of a bottoms-up. Like we build, we create a more secure community by um, sort of building, improving the bonds between the people in it, and that means pulling in people from diverse communities, you know, accepting them, and even if we disagree with them, um, and like repeating that over and over again um, over time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that we should care about security and clearly if your life is threatened or your health is threatened in a disagreement don't use productive disagreement strategies to get mm-hmm. yourself out of there like you know use use survival strategies um but um assuming that it's more about ideas and beliefs and you know values um i think that's focus on the growth focus on the connection focus on the enjoyment instead that's a good point the thing you said at the end there because like i often think about sort of folks on the right is being driven by um, anxiety and felt need for security. Um, but you also see arguments a lot these days on the left where they'll say, look, 
disagreement, you know, we're beyond disagreement at this point because it seems to me that the, you know, neo-Nazis in the streets are a genuine threat to me and mine's well-being at this point. And so, you know, we've moved past, uh, like you're saying, we're not going to continue to try to use the methods of productive disagreement with someone who believes that, you know, we're um, immoral and should be wiped off the face of the earth in some way or another. If they're actively acting on them, I, th- I think yeah. that that's the key thing. We, I don't think relying on guilt by association is is the same thing as a, a survival threat. Um, mm-hmm. So we have to genuinely see them as a you know immediate urgent threat to our um, to our mm-hmm. safety uh, for that. To, and, and that's that's a scale, obviously. But you know, but I, I think that's the that's the hard part. That's like where do you draw that line? Um, is is a, is a big you know hard thing to figure out. I realize this is a ridiculously absurdly large question, but I'm just curious, you know, and feel free to hedge as much as you like. Do you feel like, um, you know, we're, it feels like we're we're currently in like an escalation spiral in terms of polarity and disagreement. Do you feel like that's a, a trend that will reverse at some point and there will be more communication or do you feel like it's a fever that's going to have to break in some rather violent way before we can ever reestablish sort of more functional lines of communication? How do you feel like things are headed? They're definitely not heading up at the moment. Um, I don't know where the bottom is personally. And I'm like, I've really, and I went through a pretty dark depression with the election just because I realized how much I had just misunderstood the world. And, you know, I was just mistaken about lots of stuff. Um, And I think it's easy for us to, to like really just embody all of our anxieties and think that it's doomsday. Um, but that's that that response is part of what creates doomsday. And um, my pledge to myself was really just like, how do I, um, first of all, um, not make it worse? And you know, I don't want to participate in the downward spiral of society. I want to try to provide some kind of corrective um, sort of path upwards again. You know, where we start to get along again. And who knows how it's going to end up. I don't, I personally, like a lot of my predictions are about like, yes, it's, it's bad. It could get a lot worse. Um, but what can we do to reduce that? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I have hope there. I don't think it's completely hopeless. And I think that most of our worst fears um, are exaggerated. Um, but, you know, that's just part of our nature to do that. And, um, you know, what can I do to make it better a little bit? Mm-hmm. I think it's a very earnest and, and voidy and slightly optimistic place <laughs> for us to wrap things up here. Um, so I think let's let's head on over to our lightning round. Unless you have any th- uh, final things that you're really feeling like you want to you want to cherry on top with your um, how how people should argue stuff. No, I think that was great. Um, you know, line of questioning captured the book well. So I I would I mean, what do you have you do you find areas of the book that um, seem wrong to you like i'm curious just you know from your perspective after reading it and after having that, this that conversation. seemed wrong is that what you said i'm sorry i missed you a little yeah, bit yeah. there that seemed or misguided or not fully developed and then obviously everything nothing is fully developed but you know. right of course there's always more things to say and it's it's not so much that i don't think i mean i have meta-ethical debates that i would would continue to hammer out forever about the the fact value divide side of things but i think mm-hmm. that your your steps are the right kind of things that anyone who earnestly wants to get better at dialogue needs to work on, especially the like watching your own anxiety is one of the hardest, but also one of the most useful things 
um, to cultivate. I, so it's not that I'm I don't I don't disagree. I think that you're you're on the right track of doing the right things that are helpful to the people who are reachable in that kind of way. I'm I'm just still in a very very dark place about like the the uphill battle the like right. the the asymmetric conflict between truth and falsehood the way that social media has tilted that scale even further away from truth and i just yeah i'm 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 a little nervous about where things are going i'm not i'm not saying you know we're immediately going to collapse though the the recent news with iran was was a little unnerving okay. but um yeah. <laughs> like i'm i'm you know and, and by the time this comes out we may already be at war with them so who knows yeah but like yeah i'm i'm just I think this is good stuff, and I I think in better times this would be you know a, a great thing for people to look at, and then in the meantime, is something that is helpful for ways to find community and find people who are worth um, engaging with by engaging in these kind of practices. So I don't think there's anything that you've just like totally straight up got wrong here, um, and I'm and it sounds like you're um, as you know cautiously, very very cautiously, slightly optimistic, um, yeah. whereas I think I'm. Yeah you know, cautiously, fairly pessimistic at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a, a time of uncertainty and and a lot of unknown. So, you know, yeah, it might be too little too late. I mean, that's just a, it's a tiny little book. So, you know, but that said. <laughs> but I mean, a, you know, you never know when society is going to collapse. And in the meantime, like, you got to try to help not collapse it. So I think, you know, I'm I'm doing podcasts about philosophy. You're writing a book. I think these are the best options that are available to us at the moment. Um, Amen. <laughs> right. All right. So let's talk lightning round. Um, you've heard the show, so you know how this works. For folks who have not listened before, uh, the purpose of the lightning round is to find out what is and is not real. I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me whether they are real or not real. There is no hedging allowed, but you also don't have to define what you mean by real in this particular context. Um, I'm now starting off with a new question. I want to start by just asking you, do you think anything is real? Yes, I do. And you're not going to let me define my real or not real before you go into this, right? Nope. Nope. I just want want you on the record as saying you believe that something is real. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Don't I'll worry, buddy. Answer. <laughs> Every, everyone feels the same going in. All right, here we go. Yeah. The external world. Yes. Real. Okay. Colors. No. Phenomenal consciousness. Yes. Free will. No. Selves. No. Genders? No. Race? No. Species? No. Morality? No. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Rights? No. Knowledge? No. Gods? No. Society? No. Numbers? No. Oh, almost Platonist. Uh, <laughs> fictional characters. No. Holes. With an H or a W? Yeah, like a, like a hole in a straw or something. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Chairs? No. Sandwiches? No. <laughs> Science? <laughs> I know there's a story behind that question. Um, <laughs> the story science? behind every no. one of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Science, is that a yes? No. no. 
No, okay. Natural laws. Um, yes. Ooh, that's fascinating. Beauty. Mm-hmm. No. Causality. No. And finally, dharmas. Yes. Okay. Congratulations, you survived. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was intense. How do you feel? I, I might might retract some of those no's, but you know, I think uh, <laughs> I had to, I had to go in bold. <laughs> you can take it up with the Twitter. They will nice. they will be on you about this. Do you feel like it changes the experience asking you ahead of time to stick on the record as whether something is real or not real? Uh yeah, I think so. It's you know, it's good to have that at least one caveat because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think that if someone said no to that question, then I guess you don't have to ask any others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a we had a very clever patron comment um, that that recommended that as a shift, and I think it's really it's a good primer. It forces people to yeah. not because we had we had a we had a lot of Buddhists on who all just like to say no to everything. So mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna see if we can't tweak that a little bit. Um, yeah, how do you right. yeah how do you pin down the, the the Buddhist or the you know the everything is illusion kind of person, but yeah, well, we had to add dharmas just for them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on Buster. Do you want to let folks know uh, the name of the book and where they can find you one more time? Yeah. Why are we yelling um, is at bookstores and you can find me at busterbenson.com. That's my blog and website and at Twitter uh, at Buster on Twitter. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. So good. Thank you so much. It was a huge pleasure. Absolutely. Catch you back on the Twitters. All right. Bye. I want to give an extra special start to a new Voidy year thanks to all our listeners and patrons out there. I feel so lucky every day that I get to do this passion project and share it with y'all, and your support makes it all possible. Uh, We've got several new patrons this month who I wanted to give a shout out to. So thanks to Trilobite Tark. Thanks to Jonathan Yance Jones. Thanks to Joel Nield. And thanks to Jason Lee Baez, who's going to hopefully be a guest on the show in the near future. Um, Thank you all so much for joining. And um, as always, I want to give very special thanks to our $20 tier patrons, Jude Law, Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb, Good Morning Camp Quest, Gimme Those Sweet Sweet Utils, and Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And of course, as always, extra top of the tier thanks to our uh, longest, most long term, biggest supporter, Dave Maslich. I really genuinely do appreciate all y'all. Thank you so, so much. Um, if you'd like to support the show, Please leave us a five-star rating or review on a podcast app near you. Uh, follow us on Twitter, at ETVPod. Um, and if you do notice yourself looking forward to these episodes each week, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. It's just $4 a month, and you get our bonus book club content. Um, and most importantly, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. The void.